rest in Christ alone, our rock of ages. We believe that He alone atoned for our sins. He has the power to save and to sanctify all who believe in Him. And so, Lord, we rest in You, our rock of ages. Bless us now as we study Your Word. Give us uh, the desire to not only hear these things and understand them, but to hear them with an intent to obey. Help us find ways in which we can respond to Your truth in our own lives. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as always, it is our supreme joy to study the Word of God. What a reason in of itself to rejoice and praise God. And I just was thinking this week, let's never, in this church, let's never squander this opportunity we have to study and preach and submit to the preaching of God's Word. I was reading an article this week, it's from some famous pastor on the East Coast. He sort of has appointed himself as the one who's going to rescue Christianity from itself. And basically he said that in order to get Christianity to grow, we have to give people what they want in the method that they want it. I'm certain there are plenty of things that I have no clue of and methods that I have no clue of that would attract more people. But there is one thing that I know, and that is that the Word of God is what the Spirit uses to save and sanctify us. So open your Bibles to Matthew 27. We'll keep that in mind. This is what will save and sanctify. We have the end of this magnificent gospel in view. I was filing away. Each Sunday morning I file away my sermon from last week, from the week before, and I was putting it in the file folders there, and there are about 160, 170 sermons there over five years preaching out of Matthew, and this has just been a wonderful, tremendously blessed journey, and we have the end in sight. Over the next few weeks, before we get to the end, we're going to talk about the nature and purpose of the crucifixion. It really is a study of the atonement. Using Matthew's gospel as our guide, we're going to follow the storyline here and just draw from it what we can understand about the atoning purpose and power there in the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah 53 always comes to mind when we think of the atonement. Some have called Isaiah 53 the preview of the atonement. And so much of that wonderful chapter informs not only our music and our worship and our sermons and our understanding, but even informed Matthew as he wrote the story of Christ's crucifixion. Let me read to you. A few of these phrases from Matthew, um, excuse me, Isaiah 53 that are very familiar to us and help us understand the atonement. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. One of these phrases and many others of these phrases would be a wonderful title for this section. I picked the third phrase that I read here and called simply this section of Matthew, crushed for our iniquities. We've just wrapped up a gruesome 
description of the process of crucifixion. And some people might wonder, why? Why all this sin and torture and death? Why couldn't Jesus just have died naturally? Better yet, isn't God powerful enough just to reach down and just save people without Jesus' death? I think this thinking and other types of thinking have led some people to simply reject the idea of atonement. How do people reject it? Well, one way, the obvious way, is coming from sort of theological liberalism, and the attitude is simply that the atonement did not, in fact, happen. The idea of the atonement is repulsive, they say, that God would punish His Son for other people's sin. They say, quote, it is divine child abuse, unquote. So they mock it and reject it altogether. Jesus, instead, they would say, is simply an example of someone who died for something he really believed in. Shouldn't we all follow that kind of example? Another form of rejection is when, probably more tempting to those of us who are here, when we succumb to the temptation to simply ignore or neglect the atonement. Our affections turn away from Christ and His cross, and we turn inward. We focus on self. We focus on our personal felt needs. We focus on our own desires. We forget about the cross. We forget to meditate on it and think about it and remind ourselves of it. We focus on what we want, what we feel like we need. Of course, churches do this to obtain numeric gains. Your church won't grow if you discuss sin and death and atonement. The week to week, as a church, you've got to focus on personal finances and marriage tips. People just want a positive message, and by so doing, they neglect or ignore, even if they say they believe in it, they ignore the idea of atonement. A final way that I wrote down in which we reject the atonement is when we strip the atonement of its depth. We strip the atonement of its richness. We may talk, we may even sing and think about the atonement, but, but again, perhaps it's in a little bit of a, a, a narcissistic way. We think of the atonement as simply about God's love for us. It's simply about me. And of course, there's no one that would affirm this more than me, that God loves us and God sent His Son to the world because of His love, and there is great love. In fact, we're going to talk about at length today the love of Christ in this crucifixion, but is that all it's about? Simply how much God loves us? There's a famous song written, I don't know, a decade or two ago, sung in churches all over, very popular, and actually it's a beautiful tune, a couple of good lyrics in there, although it stayed kind of shallow. But there's that unfortunate last phrase, talking about the cross, talking about the crucifixion, it says, He thought of me above all. No, Jesus was not an idolater. Jesus worshiped God first. Jesus thought to glorify God first, to carry out the plan of redemption. Yes, there was love in that. There was love for us in that. But His objective was to honor God, to glorify God, to bring praise and glory to His own name above all, not us. And so many people, the atonement simply revolves around their own eternity, and that's it. It has nothing to do with the depthness, the depth and the richness that we can find in the atonement. So what we're going to do as we read this and study this the next few weeks following Matthew here 
They're going to give us a little bit of an introduction to the doctrine of the atonement. The first week, this week, we're going to look at the necessity of the atonement. That is to say, the cross of Christ provided necessary atonement, necessary in terms of God, His justice, His holiness, His responsibility as Creator, also necessary in terms of our sin. The following time, we'll study the substitutionary nature of the atonement, very important idea to and central to the atonement. And then finally, we'll see the cross as a satisfactory atonement. It was sufficient to satisfy God's justice, God's wrath, and truly and fully atone and save people. We'll even touch on a much debated, much discussed topic of limited atonement in that time. So this week, we will begin this study, really a three-week, three-point sermon, basically. And we'll begin it with the reading of the Word. Matthew chapter 27. I'll read down to 50. I don't think we'll make it to 50 today, but let me read all the way down to verse 50, beginning in verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put, a reed, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I think an argument, a good argument could be made that mankind's deepest desire is justification. Now, they may not use that word justification. They might say they want a clean conscience. They, want, they may say they want to be able to look, in the, look at themselves in the mirror, think of themselves as good. And by God's grace, some people discover that they can't do that on their own. They have to look to Christ alone, and they know that they are subject of God's judgment, and so they must trust in Christ. But even those who don't believe in Christ, I think down deep inside, want to be justified, and they seek to be justified. Even those who don't believe in God, I think down deep inside, they, they want to feel that they are good, that they're okay. And if there's some sort of afterlife, that they're bound for the positive side of the afterlife, not a negative afterlife. Unless a person is a psychopath or perhaps demon-possessed, I think they join the rest of the human race in convincing themselves that they are indeed good enough. They are moral. They are good. They are sufficient. Even the bad things they do, well, they're not that bad or or perhaps like a, like a bad ref, they, they make up for the bad things they've done later on. This is why when Paul wanted to talk about justification, standing before God as righteous, he spent three chapters, the first three chapters of Romans, talking about how no one can be justified by their own merit. And Paul walked through several various categories of 
of humans, so to speak, or morality. He started with the most obvious people who can't be justified, and that is immoral folks are clearly not justified before God. Paul pointed out that oftentimes God just simply gives them over to what they desire, their immorality, and then reprobates them, turns them away permanently. At that point, there's no hope of them ever being justified, only damnation. At this point, Paul, hearing the moral people sort of patting themselves on the back, writes in chapter 2 of Romans to the moral people. What about really good, law-abiding citizens, moral, ethical people? What about them? Surely they're justified. Surely they're okay. Paul said, no, you moral people, starting with the fact that you're full of pride by judging immoral people, when you do the same things, at least in your heart, you are storing up the wrath of God which will come against you, he said. Okay, Paul, then what about biblically moral people, people who abide by God's standards laid out in Scripture. In their context, it would be the Jews. They're doing their gut-level best to obey all the laws and the, the morals of the Old Testament, all the covenantal standards. Surely they would be justified, Paul. Paul gives the answer, verse 9 of chapter 3. Aren't we Jews better off? Aren't we justified? Then he says, quoting from Psalms, no one is righteous, not even one. Now, this pattern is not original to Paul. In fact, we've followed a similar pattern as we've gone through Matthew 27. Who put Jesus on the cross? Who's guilty as we read through these verses, this chapter in specific, but even the chapter four before? Who's guilty of Jesus' death? You know, begin with Judas, right? I mean, he knew Jesus, was around Jesus, but for about $400, betrayed him to the people who wanted him dead. Judas is certainly guilty. What about the religious leaders? Another category of moral, so to speak, people. Well, they certainly have blood on their, Jesus' blood on their hands because they're the ones that initiated and carried out the false trials and contrived the whole plan and worked up the crowd and convinced Pilate and others to kill him. Speaking of Pilate, what about Pilate? Is he, is he innocent or is he guilty? And here's a guy who had the authority to stop this illegal farce of a trial. Instead, he was more concerned about his own neck, his own reputation with Caesar. He washed his hands so he could blame somebody else. Then he had Jesus tortured and killed. Which brings up the group we read about and studied last time, the soldiers. These men were completely ignorant of Jesus. They had no relationship with Jesus. They were Syrians, most likely, from a different place. They didn't have any kind of offense or problem with Jesus. The only way they saw Jesus was simply that He was fresh meat that they could butcher and torture and slaughter. And there's yet another category of people. It's the disciples. Represented by Peter, these are the guys that said they would die for Jesus. They would defend Jesus all the way to their own death. And they swore and they made promises that they would never leave Jesus. But as soon as the shepherd was struck, they fled. And they denied that they ever knew him. No one is off the hook. No one is guiltless. There is none righteous. No, not one. From the greatest and the grossest of sins 
all the way to the polite, seemingly innocent, justifiable sins, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God's glory, His holiness, our sinfulness, that's what makes payment and punishment for sin necessary. If God is to forgive, there must be a payment for sin. There must be atonement. And that's point one, and that's the subject matter of our time today. The atonement of Christ provided and accomplished on the cross is a, a necessary atonement. It's a necessary atonement. And it's necessary, first of all, because of our sin. And this is what Matthew has established. No one is guiltless in this process. No one is clean. No one walks through this time. Now, we're going to meet some ladies later on, and it really is not there to present to us that, oh, but there's someone else righteous who got to Christ on their own righteousness. That's not the purpose. It's to show us that there were those who were dedicated. But the point is, most of this chapter shows us that everyone is guilty. Everyone is sinful. Everyone needs their sins atoned. Just a couple of months ago, the Vatican kept their annual tradition by having a trio of Advent sermons preached there in St. Peter's Basilica. What's the tradition? Well, a priest every year is appointed by the Pope to deliver three sermons during the Advent season, during Christmas time, to everybody who lives and works there at the Vatican. That includes the Pope, all the way down to, I suppose, the Vatican garbage man. And it's kind of tradition because this is sort of how the Pope sets up. This is the kind of preaching. He, this is supposed to be the, the preaching that everyone's supposed to emulate. This is true Catholic homiletics. This is how everyone's supposed to emulate. This is, this is the preacher of preachers. This is the one that all Catholic priests and cardinals and bishops should look to as an example of true Catholic preaching. Well, this last year, Pope chose a cardinal by the name of Cantalamessa, who preached his three Advent sermons, one each on faith, hope, and love, the three central Christian virtues. In his sermon on faith, he mentioned the traditional and historic biblical view of Christ and the cross, that it is necessary for salvation, and that all other religions, quote, were considered false from the start, or were not taken into consideration at all. But he mentioned this traditional, orthodox, biblical view, not in order to endorse it, but to distance himself from it. He said, that's not the way we think anymore. Modern thinking has brought us to a better place. He says, God has far more ways, quote, God has far more ways to save than we can think of. He has established channels of His grace, but he's also not bound himself to these channels. In other words, any other religion can save people and no religion can save people. He went on to answer the question, why then preach the gospel? By essentially saying the gospel has nothing to do with sin or condemnation or atonement or our need for atonement. The gospel is simply one of the many positive messages across the world that give people a positive view of self. In other words, people don't need the message of their sin. They don't need the message that Paul wrote about or that Matthew wrote about. 
They don't need the message of atonement. They don't need then following that message, that dark message of sin, following it with the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Rather, they need the good news of themselves, of their own worth. Now, I'm sad to say that Cardinal Cantalamessa's view is indeed consistent with the current teaching of the Catholic Church. The Pope himself has said the same kinds of things in numerous sermons and proclamations, not to mention the fact that this view was espoused and codified at the Second Vatican Council held in 62 to 65. Now, that is not to say that all Catholics believe this, and I've learned even recently not all even Catholic priests believe this. What is appalling about this view, and the reason I bring it up, is because it makes the atonement completely unnecessary. All that Jesus went through, all the things that we've studied, all that Jesus accomplished that day, suffering through that whole process, even the things He said and did on the cross, even His death, even then His resurrection, is completely superfluous if we don't need our sins atoned for. If we don't need our sins atoned for, if we have no use or need of Jesus, then all that He did is completely useless. It's a waste of time. And listen, folks, you have to go to the next logical step. If that's the position you take, Jesus either knew that His suffering and death was meaningless and useless, or He was a dupe and couldn't figure out that it was meaningful, meaningless and useless. And therefore, He shouldn't be thought of positively or worshipped in any way. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is the great news that our sins have been atoned for. That though we deserve to die for our sin, we don't have to. Though we deserve to suffer our sin is infinite filth. It is cosmic treason. But the good news is that Christ, with His work on the cross, has provided atonement. From the beginning of the world, we watch Adam and Eve fall into sin. It seems like a sin that's really mild on the surface. They just eat some fruit. But that sin, in that sin, was doubt of God, doubt of God's Word. In that sin was even a despising of God. As soon as they committed that sin, as soon as they fell into that sin, their spirits were dead instantaneously. And a flood of sinful and evil desires rushed in. It's why suddenly they were aware of their nakedness. If you want evidence of that fall, then you just read the following chapters in Genesis. Watch the human race. Now all of us born into sin, born as sinners. Human race being plunged into depravity. Just the next few chapters, you have murder and death and polygamy and pride all of it building up. Every sin, no matter how small, no matter how little, by our estimation, is an affront to God. It's an affront to His Word. It's an affront to His grace and blessing upon you. And we steal, when we sin, we steal glory from God, right? To obey God is to glorify Him, is to honor Him in our hearts, is to carry out His law, knowing that it brings Him glory. So when we, when we sin, we're stealing God's glory to satisfy our own desires. That's why sin is often called a debt. 
Sin is also called a transgression. It's a, it's a violation. God has said, don't go there. Don't eat that fruit. Don't do this. And we violate. With every violation, there is a penalty. There is punishment. That's why sin is also called enmity. It pitches us against God. Now, you may not think of yourself as God's enemy, but it's like committing treason and saying, oh, but I, but I still love America. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Man, comma, Naturally God's Enemies. I can't imagine that would be a super popular sermon in today's world. In this message on Romans 5, verse 10, he said, By nature we're born enemies of God. The original sin of the human race, our depravity, just by merely being part of that human race, and the fact that we sin externally is just an evidence of that fallen nature. We're just actualizing that enmity, he says. So Edward says we are, A, completely unable to save ourselves, B, ungodly, sinfully stained, and C, thus we are enemies of God. Folks, every sin is an expression of enmity with God. Well, all this to say, atonement is absolutely necessary because of our sin. We must have our sins atoned. We must have our sins covered. We must have our sins paid for. The penalty must be paid. Atonement is necessary because of our sin. But that's only half the picture. Atonement is also necessary because of God's holiness. You see, in the atonement, we have both the holy justice and the holy love of God in perfect display. Justice is being poured out. There's pain. There's payment for that sin. There's death for that sin. But since it is indeed atonement, it's on someone else's behalf. And so in that atonement, we also see a perfect display not only of justice, but also of love. I mean, think about this for a moment. If God is creator of God, if He's sovereign and holy, and holiness, by the way, is not just moral uprightness, it's, it's absolute perfection, utter perfection in all virtues. If, if God is holy and He's created this world, beginning with all the angels all the way down to the earth that we walk on, and God created in such a way that Sin was a possibility. In fact, it wasn't just a possibility. It was part of His purpose. It, it wasn't just something that he, he, he saw, well, it could happen, it may happen, it may not happen, I sure hope it doesn't. No, it was all part of His plan. It was all part of His purpose that this possibility, after it had been created, that not only angels but even man would fall into sin. If this is the way God's done it, if this is the way God has planned it all, then, then God ultimately, though He doesn't sin and though He doesn't tempt people to sin... God is responsible for setting all things right. God, in other words, is responsible for paying every last sin its due, for punishing every last molecule of evil. God is responsible for everything. He is responsible for ultimate justice over everything. We think of justice, we think of judgment, we think of the fire of the hell, fire of hell, eternal punishment. That's where sin is dealt with. That's where unbelievers live in eternity. They're in that place created for Satan. They live there never believing, never repenting, never expressing faith, never turning from their sin, always cursing God. They dwell with Satan forever. 
justice is executed upon them for their sin on this earth and their ongoing sin throughout eternity. What about the justice for the sins of those who go to heaven? What about the justice for the sins of believers? Those sins are paid for by Christ, aren't they? Those sins are paid for by Jesus. Listen carefully. Forgiveness is not free. That's free for us. But it's not free. God didn't just sweep your sin under the rug and say, let's just forget you ever did that. That's not forgiveness. With real forgiveness, there must be atonement. There must be a payment for sin. And, and Jesus is the one that paid for that sin. So again, this creator, sovereign God, if he really is to be just, every single sin must be punished to the fullest extent of the law. How does he do that? He does that with hell for unbelievers, and he does that with the atonement of Christ for believers. And so our sin, if we're a believer, the sin of us, the sin of other millions upon millions of other believers, multiplied by all the sins that they've committed and all the depth of those sins, exponential evil, really, all of that was placed upon Christ. God turned His back on Jesus and punished Him for our sin. That's what atonement is. In the very beginning, God said the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits died, their bodies began dying, and God killed that first animal as an expression of atonement. Death is a result of sin. There is punishment. And that idea of atonement, that God must execute, God must execute His justice, that He can provide something in such a way that he can also express His love. That idea of atonement was locked into the Old Testament Scriptures. The people began to see that God had provided graciously and His love had provided the sacrificial lamb that would take their sin and take the punishment. And of course, this all pictured Jesus Christ who would come and be the Lamb of God and take away the sins of the world. What we have in the atonement... It's not just the holy justice of God, but also God's holy love. Isn't that wonderful? God displaying both justice and love. He does it by justifying sinners. Job in chapter 9 says, How can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him a thousand times. We are all silent before a holy God. In other words, in terms of our own merit, in terms of our own ability, we stand before God naked. We have nothing. That's why we just sang in that hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy, thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. And so we look to the love of God and the atonement of Christ that our sins can be paid for. John Bunyan, in his notes, talks about this atoning love, he finally discovered that he no longer needed to build up his own righteousness in order to be accepted by God, but that God had provided perfect righteousness for him, that God had provided someone to pay for his sin on his behalf. Bunyan exclaimed in his notes, my chains fall off my legs indeed, I was loosed from my irons, I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Folks, my prayer is that you haven't, if you haven't discovered 
this joy in your sins being atoned for, you can. Just believe in Christ. When I was a young minister, I was in college, I was a youth minister, a small church. There was a, I've told you this story before, but it's been a long time. There was a young boy, a big fella, was a football player named Billy. And uh, Billy was coming to our youth group, and I began to talk with Billy, and he was interested in God and didn't have any kind of concept of the gospel or the atonement or anything. And, and I took Billy out to lunch, and I explained the gospel to him, and, uh, and I told him, I said, Billy, you know, I wasn't uh, much younger than you. I was a teenager when I received Christ, and, and I told him the joy of, of learning that Christ died for me, that He took my sin. And if I believed in Him, that those sins were taken care of. I said, once I realized that and, and prayed out a prayer of faith and repentance, once I did that, I remember Billy laying in bed that night with a smile from ear to ear that I couldn't wipe off. I just couldn't believe that my burden has finally rolled away. I said, Billy, don't you want to follow Christ and believe in what He did for you? And Billy said, ah, Pastor, I, I don't know. I'm not really ready. I got a lot of things and things I want to do in school and so forth. But I'm really interested, and I, I'm really burdened with my sin. So I prayed for him. We went our separate ways. A couple weeks later, my phone at the office, this is before cell phones, my phone at the office, or any affordable cell phones, I should say. Cell phones have been around for a while. He called my office, and um, hey, Pastor John, I said, Billy, how you doing? He said, Pastor. I said, yeah. He said, that, you know that smile you were talking about? I said, yeah. He said, I got it. <laughs> he trusted in Christ, and he felt the true love of Christ in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Well, let's look actually at Matthew. Look there at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just so you know, Jesus wasn't confused theologically. He wasn't asking why and what are the details. It is a cry of anguish. It is a cry of being tortured. Back up in verse 45, it says, at the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And what we're seeing here, I believe, is a visible manifestation of the judgment and justice of God. It says this darkness rolled in around the sixth hour. That would be about noon. Let me give you a little bit of timeline, just sort of filling in the blanks from the other Gospels. Jesus was probably on the cross by 9 a.m. We know from last time, there was as soon as He went up and was hoisted up and lifted up before man... There was mockery, there was chiding, there was continued abuse and hatred, spewing from everyone, the religious leaders, of course, the crowd, the soldiers, even the other criminals. Luke tells us that somewhere in there is when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't think we have to analyze that too much today, other than to say Jesus was holding out forgiveness for anyone who would believe and be willing to see and understand their own sin and turn to Him. Sometime later, one of the criminals began to have a change of heart as the pain 
sank in, he began to ask Jesus and speak to Jesus of Jesus' own identity and essentially professed faith. And that's when Jesus gave his second statement on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Most people also agree that it was soon after that that the first disciple who had run away with all the other disciples, the first apostle first reappeared. And it was the apostle John. He came back to the cross. There were some ladies that were there. John came to see his Savior on the cross. Jesus' mother was there with him along with some other ladies. And this is when essentially Jesus told John to take care of his mother. He said, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Then, verse 45, here in Matthew, noontime comes, and with noon comes this darkness. That's interesting because Matthew simply says darkness. And I suppose it could be used to talk about, I don't know, stormy weather, clouds rolling in. More remotely, it could have been something like a cosmological event, an astro astronomical event, like a solar eclipse. I think the calendar makes that unlikely. If it were a storm or simply clouds, I think reading the other gospel accounts would make it clear. Someone would say it a little bit differently. Clouds rolled in, a storm rolled in, or whatever. But none of them do that. The other gospel writers simply say the same thing that Matthew did. Darkness and shrouded. But that leads me to believe that this is simply the manifest judgment of God. God was, in this moment, pouring out His perfect justice upon Jesus for our sin. Our, the earth cannot bear under it. Death and darkness, judgment flooding in, poured out on Jesus. So what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, these are the saddest, most tragic words ever spoken. It is the cry of our Savior in utter spiritual anguish. No human crying out to God in faith and love is ever denied God's care, except right here. This is the only place. The cup of God's wrath is being drained to the dregs. All of it poured on Jesus in this moment. God saw in this moment not His perfect, flawless, sinless, righteous Son. No. He saw your lust and your anger and your pride and my envy and my bitterness and exponentially more. And because of that, God poured out on His Son, His beautiful Son, His righteous wrath. Why? Because the only way to deal with our sin the only way God could fully display His holiness, His holy love, His holy justice was to provide forgiveness through a completely necessary atonement. I'm reminded of that first verse of that old hymn by Philip Bliss. 
Hallelujah, what a Savior. Close again out of Isaiah 53. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you. We worship you because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We bring you praise because of your justice and wrath that was due us was instead poured out upon the Holy One of God. He atoned for our sins. For that, Lord, we are eternally grateful and will always sing hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, and undoubtedly in a room like this there are those who have not genuinely come to Christ, have not ever truly placed their faith and trust and begun to build their life around this truth of Christ crucified. And so, Lord, grant them faith and repentance right now. I pray that they would just cry out in their heart, in their mind, speak to you. They would cry out in repentance and faith. And, Lord, at this moment, I pray that they would be saved. And, Lord, they would be filled with that inexpressible peace and joy that passes all understanding. The peace that only your love through the atonement of Christ can provide. Lord, we cherish this love. We relish the truth of Christ crucified. We see that the atonement because of our sin was totally and utterly necessary. And we pray, Lord, that we would live our lives again, building it around the truth of Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. Help us live and worship and love one another in a way that would reflect your love for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. My benedictions during this time will all be inspired by Isaiah 53. Now may we go rejoicing in the wonderful work of Christ. For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have each, every one, turned to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Amen.